0: Hi, this is Fiona. So I have a one-year-old who had a seizure when she was sick with a really high fever. Uh, So does this mean that she'll be more likely to have epilepsy or any sort of delays when she grows up? Is there anything that I should have done to prevent this? And what should I do if this happens again to make sure that she's safe? really really good question seizures are a common thing it, this sounds like a febrile seizure or a seizure mm-hmm. in the setting of it was fever with a fever right right mm-hmm. but seizures in general epilepsy they're all common in kids and can be really scary when we see them
1: I think they're very scary to see and I'm a medical professional and yet like when I see a seizure like I panic
0: you feel like that you don't know what to do, you don't know how to react, you want to do something.
1: Absolutely. It's really common. So um, 3.4 million people in the U.S. live with epilepsy, which is, um, we'll talk about what epilepsy is later, but that does cause seizures. And about half a million of these people are under 18 years of age, so they're children.
0: Right. One in 26 people in the U.S. will develop epilepsy at some point in their lives, and with this frequency, you're bound to run into somebody that has seizure disorder.
1: Yeah, you you will. And I know people who do have seizure disorders.
0: Yeah, yeah. definitely. It's the most common brain disorder in children. In fact, in 2019, in California alone, there were nearly 60,000 cases reported in children from age 0 to 17.
1: Wow. So we've talked about how common epilepsy is. But how do you define epilepsy? Is it a person who— who has a seizure?
0: Well, no, not (laughs) a seizure. It's right, but it's important to remember that there are times that seizures can be provoked by something else. So it doesn't necessarily fit into the diagnosis of epilepsy. For example, in pediatrics, like Fiona mentioned, there are febrile seizures, seizures that occur when the kid has a fever. Mm -hmm. But there are other things that can cause seizures as well, which we'll talk about.
1: Mm -hmm. So I remember learning that fever lowers the seizure threshold. So if they only occur while a child is having a fever, then we don't consider that epilepsy.
0: Correct. We'll spend some time talking more about febrile seizures later because I know that this is something that's really scary for some parents, especially when they've had one before. But sometimes seizures can also occur as the result of like a traumatic brain injury. So your kid falls off something and bonks their head and then after that they have a seizure, Mm -hmm. this would not be considered epilepsy.
1: Mm -hmm. So epilepsy can be diagnosed if a seizure occurs more than once in the absence of an identifiable cause like fever or trauma.
0: That's right. And seizures are triggered by abnormal changes in the electrical and chemical activity within a person's brain.
1: Okay, so what causes this abnormal activity? Is there any way we can predict who's going to develop seizures?
0: It's a good question. Not necessarily. So seizures can be caused by anything that injures the brain, including head injuries, like I mentioned before, infections, poisoning or overdose of certain medications. Even birth injury or underlying like genetic syndromes can make kids more likely.
1: Mm -hmm. So birth can be traumatic sometimes.
0: It can be, yeah. Yeah. However, most of the time, a cause for seizures and epilepsy can't be found. So 70% of kids that have epilepsy have no identifiable cause. Although recently, with advances in genetic testing, we mm-hmm. are starting to identify some of those cases.
1: Mm-hmm. So
0: of that 70%, like 25 to 50% they're thinking now there now, can be good, an 80%. identified mm-hmm. genetic cause.
1: Because of advances, yeah. Okay. So that's a large percentage of people with epilepsy still in the unknown category that we don't know what's causing the seizures. But most young children with epilepsy won't necessarily have seizures for their whole lives, right?
0: Right. That's absolutely true. So about two-thirds of kids will outgrow their seizures by the time they're teenagers.
1: Mm -hmm. So we see seizures most frequently throughout the first few years of life when the brain is undergoing the most rapid changes. So I remember the seizures with fever, they're most common up to about three years of age.
0: Yep. And that's right, and that younger kids have it more frequently because their brains are developing and growing. When a teenager comes in with the very first seizure, we all kind of scratch our heads and we Mm -hmm. think about doing a little bit more of a workup Mm -hmm. because it's just not that usual to have your first seizure Mm -hmm. later in life like that.
1: So when a child has their first seizure, they will almost always make it to medical attention because the parents are
0: Freaked out.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. It's really terrifying to watch a seizure.
0: Yeah. I mean, parents are totally rightly, like appropriately scared and they want answers. Why is this happening?
1: I'm with them. Yeah.
0: So you bring them in to see a medical provider. Maybe you go to the emergency room. Maybe you go to an urgent care or your pediatrician. Depending on how severe the initial seizure is, the type of seizure, how many seizures they had. If they're acting normally after the seizure, all of these factors together may influence if your child is going to be worked up as what we call an outpatient or an inpatient.
1: Right. So that's medical speak. So outpatient is means your primary doctor, the primary care provider, that they may refer you to a maybe a pediatric neurologist who will order all the necessary tests, but the entire workup usually takes a long time because it's hard to coordinate all those tests and the appointments and all. So it takes weeks to months. If you're admitted to the hospital, everything happens on a much more quick basis. And so that means your child ends up in the hospital, sees all the specialists, gets all the tests done. And so that may just take a day or two.
0: Right. Thanks for clarifying that. Mm -hmm. But it's important that we talk about what this diagnostic workup looks like, whether you get it done in the outpatient setting or the inpatient setting. What usually are we doing?
1: Well, usually we talk. (laughs)
0: First talk, always talk. talk.
1: Yeah, so we, we get the history. We want all these details. You know, we want to know every detail, like what was the child doing before it happened? What body parts were shaking? Or did they stiffen? Was it one side of the body or was it the whole body that was involved? And which area started first? Did the eyes stare fixed in one direction? Did they talk during the seizure or cry? How long did it last? And then how long did it take after the seizure for them to return back to normal in their normal sort of state.
0: Right. A lot of detailed questions. And we're all aware that in that moment, you're so panicked that you may not be paying attention to remember all of those little details.
1: No, I wouldn't remember those for sure. Right. Yeah. So some neurologists actually um, recommend that you whip out your smartphone and you start recording it.
0: Yeah. And we acknowledge that this can be a really hard thing to do when you are... Panicked, you're there with your child, but it can really be so so helpful to have that information captured. Mm -hmm. Um, It can kind of tell them where they feel like the focus of the seizure might be occurring, and and guide really guide management.
1: Mm -hmm. You know, one thing during the seizure is a parent wants to comfort the child, but there's not much a parent could do during the seizure, so it does make sense to maybe just record it, and that'll be helpful to your doctor later, and then they could start the workup.
0: Right, and so after we've talked and we've gathered all of this information about what it looked like, how long it happened. They might perform other studies, including imaging of the brain.
1: Mm -hmm. So this could be a CT scan, a computed um, tomographic scan of the brain, or an MRI, magnetic resonance imaging. So the CT scan is a quick look, that's a faster test, and it looks for anything that's more serious that can be leading to the seizure, like blood um, or tumor or other structural problem with the brain.
0: An MRI gets a more detailed picture of the brain. However, it's a much longer test. It can take up to an hour. And so young children usually require sedation, possibly, you know, with an anesthesiologist. And so that takes some coordination.
1: Because they need to be still during the whole time. So I don't know. I haven't had a brain MRI, but I've had MRIs on my knees, which have needed that. And um
0: It's not a pleasant experience. It's very claustrophobic. It's loud. Uh It's really hard for a young kid to
1: sit through. Yeah, it can be. Um, Sometimes an EEG is performed. This is the usual practice.
0: Right. That stands for an electroencephalogram.
1: Thank you for that. And you usually make me say the long words. (laughs) So this is a, a study where little electrodes are placed all over the surface of the scalp.
0: It's pretty cute when the kids are getting this done. It looks like a little swim cap with all of these wires coming out the back.
1: Yeah, it's a very weird and wired skin mm-hmm. swim cap. Yeah. So these electrodes can pick up um, the brain signals, and sometimes it picks up abnormal electrical activity coming from areas of the brain. And that may mean that these areas are at risk for having seizures.
0: Right. While this is a helpful tool, it's also possible that the EEG can be completely normal mm-hmm. and your kid may still have epilepsy if they're not captured while that swim cap is in place.
1: Right, because the, the brain activity might only be abnormal during the seizure. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So, depending on what type of seizure your child experiences, a physician may also perform blood tests or even genetic testing.
0: Right, like we talked about before. Mm-hmm. So, we've mentioned that there are different types of seizures. What are the most common seizures, and how might parents learn to differentiate these?
1: Okay, so the real dramatic ones are the generalized tonic-clonic seizures. These were previously called grand mal seizures. And grand mal is, that must be French, right, for big, bad seizures, Ah. I think. Yeah, so these are often what we think of when we think of seizures, the kind you see in, like, movies or on TV. They look really dramatic. And sometimes somebody will fall to the ground, become very stiff, and that's the tonic part, the stiff part. And then they um, uh, may follow this by having the muscle jerks of their arms and their legs. And that's the clonic part is the jerking part. Mm -hmm. Their breathing is usually shallow or they can even stop breathing altogether. And their skin can change color. Sometimes there's loss of bladder or bowel control. And usually the whole episode lasts only a couple of minutes. But, you know, if you're witnessing it, it seems like an eternity. Uh I mean, even like 30 seconds can seem like an eternity. And there's usually afterwards, there's some confusion and fatigue, and that's called the post-ictal state.
0: Right, the post-ictal period. Mm -hmm. There's also simple partial or focal seizures where the jerking or the clonic part might be just of one area, the arm, the leg, or the face. Um, Usually in those focal seizures, it can't be stopped, but the patient does remain The patient, the person that's experiencing them, I'm used to going back into doctor speak, remains awake or alert. And these can be compared to the complex partial seizure where it's still just that one area that's moving, but the the person loses consciousness. Mm
1: Mm-hmm. Another type of seizure that's frequently diagnosed in children is the absence seizure. And it's also used to be called petty mal or small bad seizures because it's a lot less dramatic than the grand mal seizures. So it looks like a blank stare and it can be very short. It just can begin and end abruptly, last only a few seconds. And these can frequently be missed. Um, A teacher or other adult might even think the child's just like goofing off or daydreaming or not paying attention because they're like, huh, what? when you're talking to them, because they just, like, are, like, absent for...
0: Totally absent. Parents will say that they're just kind of, like, snapping their fingers in front, like, hello, and then it'll just pass. So mm-hmm. those are really interesting. Mm-hmm. In pediatrics, another important type of seizure to know about are infantile spasms. These are clusters of quick, sudden movements that usually start between three months and two years of age. If the child's sitting up, the head will kind of fall forward, the arms will flex forward, and if they're laying down, the knees sort of come up to their chest, um, and the arms and head flex forward. It's important to know that If you notice these movements, they are a medical emergency, and unfortunately, many kids with these will go on to have really, really hard-to-treat epilepsy and seizure disorders. These are some of the
1: hardest to treat. Yeah, very difficult. So we touched on a few of the more common types of seizures in children, although you don't have to memorize all those, right? (laughs) We
0: won't quiz you at the end.
1: There's even more than the ones that we talked about, but it gives you a good idea of, like, where to start and a framework for what seizures can look like. So... um, this could should be a good time that we can talk about things that might be mistaken for a seizure, because sometimes it's not clear when there's abnormal movements, like, is this a seizure or not?
0: Right. It can be really tricky to distinguish true seizures from other weird movements that kids do all the time.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in young children, they can have breath-holding spells, and this can lead to them collapsing and then having this abnormal jerking movements. These occur generally after a young child is upset or crying or frightened, and they hold their breath, and it usually should not last longer than just a couple minutes. And the key to recognizing this is that it always is triggered by a situation of the child being
0: upset. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Fainting which occurs commonly in our teenagers and younger kids, can
1: mm-hmm.
0: happen and then can have some muscle jerks after. This is usually like when they stand up too quickly or they see something like blood or they're not well hydrated.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and so those are important mimics to think about.
1: Mm-hmm. And we talked about that with the HPV episode, that since the HPV vaccine hurts, that sometimes mm-hmm. like the kids are surprised <laughs> and then they, they faint. So it's important to have them stay, sitting down for a while. mm mm-hmm. Then there's a myoclonic jerks or jerking movements of the arms and legs. And these can happen um, like, in the, like when we're falling asleep, um, where all of a sudden you like jerk yourself awake. and so, I mean, These are not related to seizures.
0: No, myoclonic. and little kids, when they're sleeping, infants do that a lot, too. Mm-hmm. So there can be the myoclonus of infancy, which is also normal. Mm-hmm. We can also see what we call non-epileptic events. They're events that look very much like seizures, but are not accompanied by this abnormal discharge of in the brain, the electrical discharge in the brain. You may have heard them referred to previously as pseudo-seizures or psychogenic seizures, but that's a misleading term. Really. Right. It sounds
1: like they're making it up.
0: Right. They're not making it up. The episodes are real, and the people who have them do not have conscious, voluntary control over them but they really don't have an identifiable cause. There's normal EEGs, normal MRIs, and they are believed to be related like a physical reaction to a psychological stressor.
1: Mm -hmm. So I think this is a good time to move over and talk about febrile seizures because we mentioned these earlier, and these are pretty common, Mm -hmm. and these um, are different in a way, categorized differently than the other kind of seizures that we were talking about.
0: I mean, they're real, so they're not like those like, you know— you know, we talked about don't mistake these for mm-hmm. a seizure. Febrile seizures are real, They're real seizures, seizures, yeah, but they should be distinguished from true epilepsy. Mm-hmm. They're really common. About four out of a hundred children between six months and five years will develop a febrile seizure.
1: And the seizure usually occurs within the first few hours of fever, but sometimes it happens hours before the fever, before you even recognize that the child's developing a fever.
0: Yeah. Children younger than one year at the time of their first febrile seizure have approximately a 50% chance of having another one. Whereas if your child has the the first febrile seizure when they're a little bit older, that reduces the chance of having another one to 30%. -hmm. It's really common for parents to learn to, like, fear a fever if their kid has had this before, right? They're like calling their pediatrician, like, she has an ear infection. I know it because her fever is like 103 and she had a seizure last time. What do we do?
1: Yeah, this is a common question that I get. And one of the things that people worry about is that the fever is actually causing brain damage or something like that. But it's kind of weird to be afraid of fevers because fevers are actually a sign that your child's immune system is strong, and it's actually fighting the infection, and and it's reflected in the inflammation that results in fever. And the fever itself is useful, so that activates the immune system so that it's more effective getting rid of the infection. So fever is actually good for getting recovery faster. Yeah. So fevers may be uncomfortable, and they're part of the process of getting better. It's important to remember that only a very small number of children who have febrile seizures will go on to develop epilepsy. And while they are scary, the child typically is back to normal after having the febrile seizure. And it's not believed that febrile seizures cause brain damage, intellectual disability, or or death.
0: So you may be asking yourself, if febrile seizures are not a big deal, do I need to take my kid to the doctor or the emergency room if I have one?
1: It's scary, right?
0: Yeah, really scary. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah, so so don't you don't you have to go?
0: I think that you should bring your child to medical attention. If the seizure is resolved and your child's completely back to normal, Mm-hmm. then it's reasonable just to go to your regular pediatrician. Mm-hmm. But if your kid's not behaving normally, definitely if they have any neck stiffness or pain, you really need to go to the emergency room to rule out a more serious infection that causes a seizure, like meningitis, mm-hmm. which can trigger that. seizures. You do not want to miss that. Mm-hmm. Or if your kid has more than one in a 24-hour period, you should definitely see an emergency doctor.
1: Mm-hmm. So most children do not require seizure medication or further workup with laboratory tests or imaging like CTs or MRIs in the setting of a febrile seizure alone.
0: Correct. Versus that complete workup we talked about if the seizures happen outside of a fever.
1: Right. So for seizures without a fever, let's say your child has two separate episodes concerning for seizures And you're seen in the hospital, and you have an MRI of the brain, and fortunately the MRI is normal, and then there's an EEG, and the EEG confirms that there is abnormal brain activity that's leading to seizures, so then what's the next step? What's the treatment?
0: Right. The mainstay of treatment for seizures is medications. Mm-hmm. Some common medications you may have heard of are levoteracetam, which the common name is Keppra, phenobarbital, valproate or Depakote, topiramate. There are many, many more and some that are like specific medications that you would only use if you had this type of
1: epilepsy. So I want to thank you for pronouncing all of those because I didn't know how to pronounce those, so I appreciate that.
0: You're welcome. I took the hit today. <laughs>
1: yeah, thank you. So it's important with these um, uh, medications to prevent seizures, it's important to take them at the same time every day. So some of these are once a day, some of these are um, every 12 hours, but take try to take them the same time every morning and every night, separated like by exactly 12 hours, because they can be a little bit tricky. And many children need to stay on these medications for years, so it's important not to change it without talking with your physician first. Most families will also have an additional medication available that they can give to their child if they have a long seizure, like if it's more than 3 minutes, to, you know, break out of the seizure. These are referred to as abortive medications, and I just want to make clear this has nothing to do with abortions, but they abort. Well, you're
0: aborting the seizure.
1: Right, you're aborting. That means it's cutting short the seizure is what you're doing. Yeah, so that's why they're called that. So common abortive medications are rectal diazepam, clonazepam that dissolves under the tongue, and then there's some newer nasal sprays of midazolam, and sometimes insurance doesn't cover this, though, but they seem to be very effective.
0: So you can think of it, all of these. So one, you're putting in the bum, one, you're dissolving under <laughs> the tongue, and one, you're spraying up the nose. So when a kid is having a seizure, there is no way they can swallow a pill, right? right. So you have to have access, a medication that you can give in that. That's in that, absorbed that's in another absorbed way. absorbed in another way. So that's why you rapidly, have those. Rapidly
1: absorbed, yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Exactly. And it might take some time working with your neurologist to get the right medication combination for your child and the right doses. If the medicines alone don't reduce or eliminate your child's seizures, there are other therapies that can be used, like following a modified Atkins diet, which is a little bit easier than the ketogenic diet, That's, that's a a, challenge. yeah, which can be mm-hmm. a struggle. For very focused seizures coming from one area of the brain, occasionally we do surgery to r- help remove that focus.
1: So that's brain surgery. Brain surgery. Yeah, big deal.
0: A vagal nerve stimulator is um, an implantable device that can help break the seizure episode. Again, all of those are for very severe epilepsy syndromes. Most kids are just going to have a few, and they can they they go on Keppra and their seizures go.
1: Right, they go on medication. Right. right. Mm-hmm.
0: Of course, we should also mention the hot topic of CBD,
1: which is apparently good for pretty much everything, is what I hear.
0: Uh- <laughs> Actually, there is a medicine called Epidiolex. It is an FDA-approved medication, and it's pharmaceutical grade, but it's only used for the hardest-to-treat seizures. So there's a syndrome called Dravet syndrome and lennox gastaut syndrome, and these are really kids that are having many seizures a day, and it has been shown to be beneficial in this group. But CBD on its own, like we talked about in the marijuana episode or other products— are not regulated. So they can have additives that are dangerous and you're not always getting a pure product if you're not buying pharmaceutical grade.
1: Parents will usually start to notice a pattern of their child's seizures. Um, There are some common seizure triggers and these include illness or fever. The fever, as we mentioned, lowers the threshold for having seizures, poor nutrition, stress, Flickering light patterns, that's been in the news, that computer or TV screens and people have said some video games specifically are triggers Mm -hmm. for that. Strobe lights, fighting or any other kind of stress, lack of sleep. Uh, And then for females, the menstrual cycle, um, depending on where in the menstrual cycle, that that can be a trigger also.
0: Or anything that disrupts a child getting their medicine. So if they're like sick and they're vomiting and have diarrhea or they're missing doses, those can also lower the threshold to have a seizure.
1: If your child has a known seizure disorder and has a brief one, you don't always need to take them to the emergency room. But what about how to react to a seizure if you see somebody else having one and you're just a bystander? So you're in the public and somebody has a seizure and there used to be a recommendation That you should open somebody's mouth to prevent them from biting their tongue, and so you should like jam a tongue blade in there. Is that (laughs) like
0: you have that with you? Like you're you're like like you're just
1: walking around with a tongue blade, right? Yeah. So is that something that's still recommended, or is that like like ancient history? No, it's
0: ancient history. Like a lot of things that you remember, (laughs) but you want to make sure that the person is in a safe environment. They're away from hard or sharp objects. If you can get them on their side in a safe place where they can't fall, then that's useful. If possible, like I mentioned before, you want to record when the when it started or look at your clock so you know how long it's lasting. Never put anything in the person's mouth, not your fingers. Ooh, they could bite them. Yeah, you don't want to do that. Um, it's more dangerous for both you and the person seizing. And then if the seizure lasts more than three minutes, like we talked about, you should get ready to give an abortive medication if you have that at home or And or call 911.
1: In the U.S., call 911, right? Yes. Different number in other countries, yeah. Emergency response. Right. So seizures that do require immediate evaluation or calling emergency response, those are the seizures that last more than three minutes, like you mentioned.
0: Right. You also want to call if the child has a cluster of seizures or another seizure before your child returns back to normal.
1: Mm-hmm. Even if they're short, like a minute mm-hmm. or something, Yeah. And if the seizure happened in water and you think they might have swallowed or aspirated, breathed in some water, they should get attention because that could lead to, like, pneumonia or other problems.
0: Mm -hmm. If the child has a seizure that has diabetes, it's important to be seen because hypoglycemia or low blood sugars can cause seizures and need to be corrected rapidly. Mm -hmm. Um, If the child has a high fever with, like, they're not acting normally, they've got neck pain, they're tired because of concern for meningitis and encephalitis, like we mentioned earlier.
1: Right, which you don't want to miss. Um, Or if the child has a head or other injury close to the time of the seizure, then that could have resulted in like a bleed inside or near the brain, and that could be a problem.
0: Right. You also want to be seen right away if your child is having trouble breathing after the seizure. We always tell our families that if they had to give that abortive medicine, which they should always do if it's lasted three minutes or more, they should also be calling 911. Mm To get their child seen.
1: Okay, so we know the circumstances that parents should bring their kids to the yeah. emergency department for. Um, if, on the other hand, you have a 10-year-old daughter and she has epilepsy and she usually has a seizure like once every three months and you notice that she has a two-minute seizure and then three weeks later has another one-minute seizure, you, know, you don't necessarily need to bring them into the emergency department because you're more experienced with seizures in this instance. And so you just call her pediatrician, or call her pediatric neurologist to see if you need to make any changes to her medication.
0: Right. So we've talked about seizures, what they look like, how they're diagnosed and treated, and even how to respond and when to seek emergency help. What other strategies do we do to keep kids with seizures safe?
1: So um, water safety is important. And I guess I'll just state the obvious. If a kid has a seizure in the water, they could like drown, right? So you want to supervise young children with seizures while they're in the bath because they can drown even in in shallow water. And once they're old enough to encourage them to take showers if they've got a seizure disorder, any activity your child participates in the water, whether in the pool or, you know, if they're doing something that if they had a seizure could be dangerous for them, like rock climbing for something or something (laughs) like that, like they could like fall, right, and hurt themselves. So make sure the coach or other staff knows that your child has epilepsy And that they know what to do if your child has a seizure.
0: Right. The same goes for teachers and school personnel. We have posted a link to something called an epilepsy action plan. You may recognize that if your kid has asthma from the asthma action plan. Mm -hmm. But it's a form to bring to school detailing what the seizures look like and how to respond and give the medications.
1: Kids with epilepsy do have a higher incidence of learning difficulty, so it's important to meet regularly with your school and your child's teachers to ensure that they have the support that they need. They may need an IEP, an Individualized Educational Plan, or a 504, and you can learn more about those in our episode that we did on school struggles.
0: Yeah. I do want to touch briefly on the teenage years because this can be a difficult diagnosis for teenagers to handle, Many teens get upset because they can't drive or they have their license suspended. Just depending on the state, it's pretty like a three-month to one-year seizure-free period that is required before you can legally drive.
1: Because we want to make sure that they're safe Safe. when they're driving. Yeah. Another thing to consider in this age group is that anti-epileptic medications can interfere with other medications. They can cause differences with metabolism for other medications. Yeah. And so if a teen is on oral contraceptives, some seizure medications can decrease the effectiveness of birth control pills.
0: Right. So it's important to talk with your pediatrician about that. Mm -hmm. We've covered a lot of ground today, probably went over our usual time. So let's summarize today's discussion on seizures and epilepsy.
1: Seizures are a common diagnosis, and having two or more seizures without an underlying trigger is considered epilepsy.
0: There are many types of seizures and medications, and avoiding the triggers are the mainstay of treatment.
1: The diagnostic workup for epilepsy includes the history of the event, an EEG, and at times brain imaging like a CT scan or an MRI and other laboratory tests.
0: Not all seizures require a trip to the emergency room, but any seizure lasting three minutes or more, clusters of seizures, signs of infection like meningitis or possible trauma, or if your child is altered after the event, these all require immediate medical attention.
1: Mm -hmm. If a child is having a seizure, make sure that they are in a safe position. Try to get them on their side. Keep time of the event and access their abortive medication if they have one. Do not put anything in their mouths.
0: And always remember to support these kids in school, sports, and with their friendships. Having a diagnosis of epilepsy for a child can feel isolating at times, so normalize it by talking with their classmates and teachers and encouraging them to do normal activities while still being safe.
1: So that wraps up today's episode of Kids Considered. And today's episode was in collaboration with Emergency Medical Services for Children Innovation and Improvement Center, Check out other resources on seizure prevention and education on links on our website.
0: We'd like to thank Dr. William Banco, a pediatric neurologist at UC Davis Children's Hospital, for reviewing today's episode, although Dr. Dean and I take full responsibility for any errors or misinformation.
1: And that reminds me of a joke. Oh. What do you call a cow having a seizure? I don't know. A milkshake. That's not in poor taste, is it?
0: No, I think it's okay. Okay. Um, do you have any seizure experience?
1: Personally? No. No. You don't
0: have epilepsy. You've never had a seizure. Me either.
1: I don't. I have, have um, relatives with epilepsy, with severe epilepsy, and it's scary. The, the As we talked about, some of the things that um, they have to go through with these medications, you know, a lot of these first-line medications really are very well tolerated with few yeah. side effects, but... Once you get beyond them, they do have significant side effects. And then you do start considering things like surgery. And that's that's scary.
0: Yeah. I had a, I have one close friend that had epilepsy. She has grown out of it in her teenage years, but she was on Topiramate or Topamax. And it made her a little bit like we called it Dopamax, because it made her like a little dopey and slow, which she like totally acknowledged was due to that medicine. Mm-hmm. I also once was asked out on a date by a guy. This was in my adult life Mm -hmm. um, before I met my husband. And he was like, do you mind picking me up? And I was like, why? You know, Mm -hmm. and he's like, because I had a seizure like four months ago. And so Mm -hmm. they took my license away and they won't let me drive. Mm -hmm. So that was my, and I felt like that must have been hard for him, you know, getting to work and Mm -hmm. asking girls out on dates and making them drive. Mm -hmm. It's all hard.
1: It is hard. And yeah. it can, like you said, it can be stigmatizing. And so it's nice to normalize. I, have, I had this similar situation before I met my wife. <laughs> I dated somebody who had diabetes that was very poorly controlled and that she would sometimes have seizures because mm-hmm. the diabetes was poorly controlled. And, you know, I have to say, like, I didn't know much about it. And I, I was like, you know, what am I supposed to do if that happens, right? Like, if, if I'm with her, like, I didn't, I didn't know.
0: Yeah, you have to learn about it yeah. for sure, because you can really save the person's life Mm -hmm. if you know how to give these abortive medications and so really anyone that cares for a child with epilepsy should be trained on how to do that
1: absolutely that wraps up this episode of Kids Considered
0: you can find more information on our website kidsconsidered.ucdavis.edu
1: follow us on Twitter at Kids Considered
0: and Instagram at Kids Considered
1: if you have feedback on this show or topics you would like us to discuss in the future we would love to hear from you
0: Please call us. Our number is 916-915-3388.
1: Or email us at kidsconsidered at gmail.com.
0: Please rate us on iTunes or wherever you subscribe to your podcasts.
1: Thank you for listening and we hope you will join us for our next podcast.
0: Kids Considered is sponsored by UC Davis Children's Hospital.